Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I knew of Tony Blinken uh, when he was a highly regarded uh, foreign policy expert, the staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, in the uh, 2000s. But I came to really know him as the national security advisor to Vice President Biden during the Obama administration. He went on to run the National Security Council as deputy national security advisor and then became deputy secretary of state. He's been involved in all the major foreign policy uh, decision-making and debates of the last few decades. Uh, And he spent uh, this spring at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where I sat down with him for this conversation. Tony Blinken, it's it's great to have you not just here, but at the Institute of Politics, where you've been a fellow this spring. And, it's been great to be here, David, and uh, engaged in great dialogue with these kids here. You know, uh, people. I've done a lot of these by now, and there are diff- all kinds of different stories, and there are the sort of Horatio Alger uh, stories. Um, yours is not that. <laughs> You're not uh, from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, you grew up in New York. I guess your your dad uh, was prominent in the investment banking mm-hmm. business. That's right. Your mom in the arts. Yeah. Um, what really interested me was um, the the sort of middle of your childhood mm. uh, and the time you spent in France. Your mother got remarried. That's right. Uh, first of all, tell me about your stepfather, who seems like a, a fascinating character. Well, he was, and he passed away uh, recently, but he was uh, uh, an extraordinary man. He um, was born in Bialystok, Poland, and was uh, in a school with 900 kids, and he's the only one to have survived because this was just before World War II, uh, and he was a Jew in Poland. And so he spent the war in Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek, you know, the greatest hits of concentration camps and labor camps and was his only immediate family member to uh, to survive but then he went on to build an extraordinary career wound up after the war um, first in France then in Australia where he had relatives who found him and brought him there um, made his way to Harvard Law School uh, finished at the, uh, at the top of his class and had uh, an extraordinary career as an international lawyer but also a writer uh, of some prominence uh, in Europe and in the United States uh, and was one of the earliest proponents of detente between the Soviet Union uh, and the United States, wrote a, a book that was really at the heart uh, of that thesis. So he had a, an extraordinary life. But as you said, one of the, one of the you know, divorce is not usually a good thing, and uh, it's disruptive in, in so many ways. But because my parents handled it so well, um, and because it gave me an opportunity as a result of my mother remarrying uh, to uh, live and spend formative years in France, it gave me a whole new perspective on my own country. Anyone who has the opportunity, especially at a young age, to be able to see their own country through a different set of eyes by living somewhere else, that's an extraordinary benefit. Um, and let, let, let me ask you, what, what was uh, he your your Stepfather's name was uh, Samuel Pizarro. Pizarro. That's right. Uh, what were they doing in France? Your, your. Uh... So my stepdad was uh, had a law practice uh, in France, and my mom, as you said, was very involved in the arts. She had been in New York, uh, the head of the music program at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, uh, way back in the day in the nineteen sixties. Ran a modern dance company, Merce Cunningham. Oh my! Uh, who was not uh, just one. not just. Any dance company. That's a very prominent dance company. So it, 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 it was and, uh, indeed. And then she went on to um, run something called the American Center in Paris, uh, which brought together uh, some of the most remarkable artists 
Americans brought them to France, connected our countries and our cultures uh, in that way. So I was just given a tremendous uh, benefit of this experience living abroad, seeing my country through different eyes. And, you know, this was the early 1970s. We were still in Vietnam. Uh, you'd find yourself, even at a very young age, in debates in school with your classmates. And you were often put in the position of um, defending your country, <laughs> for good or bad, uh, getting into these conversations, getting into these arguments. And it kind of turns you into a junior diplomat. And I think that's one of the reasons, ultimately, I became really... A senior uh, diplomat. Well, uh, eventually, <laughs> through a process of attrition. When you look at, uh, just on your basis of having lived in France, yeah. and obviously your experience later, uh, talk just a little bit about what you see in Europe today. Mm. Obviously, France just had a very, very meaningful election yeah. in which... Uh, Essentially, an independent candidate, Emmanuel Macron, mm. of of no party, uh, was elected president, youngest president in history, and defeated uh, Marine Le Pen, mm. who who uh, represents the uh, the right there uh, and uh, the sort of populist right. Yeah, but those forces are on the move and or have been in Europe as they have are here. What's the state of play in Europe today? Well, I think what we're seeing. David, on both sides of the Atlantic, is very powerful, and uh, it really is this new dividing line. And it's a dividing line not between uh, left and right, uh, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, but a dividing line between those who, confronted with these incredible forces of change that we're all dealing with, believe that the best answer is to protect themselves, to kind of get down into a defensive crouch, and to ward these forces off. And those who believe that our best bet actually is remaining open, remaining connected, and trying to shape these forces as best we can to our advantage or at least not to our detriment. So it's this division between those who believe the best answer to change is to build a wall and those who think we should continue to build bridges. And we're seeing that powerfully well, on both sides of the Atlantic. Macron is an interesting element because he was very forceful, uh, not just in not running away from remaining open and connected, but actually embracing it. Supporting the European Union. Supporting the European Union, Le supporting immigration, supporting trade. Le Pen, Le Pen really would have been an extension in France of the Brexit vote. In, it would have been connected in people's minds. With, very much so. With that vote. It is, uh, you know, another way of putting this that may be a little less um, uh, flattering to the globalist mm -hmm. view is that the debate has uh, – uh, emerged between winners and, and losers in, right. in these changes and the, you know, right. among professionals around metropolitan areas. You, you saw Le Pen doing very well in the rural areas there, just as we saw here. So the people who have been caught up in the switches of the economy That's are right. the ones who feel detached and are more apt to want to uh, set up yeah, uh, I barriers. I, I think that's exactly right. And for those of us who believe that we need to remain open and connected, if we can't find an answer to this problem, that is, if we can't find ways to make sure that those who feel left out and left behind actually are part of the deal and brought along, then the legitimacy of the open, connected enterprise is gone. It will collapse. And so I think there's a big project, on, again, on both sides of the Atlantic, not just in defending the infamous liberal international order and everything it represents, but also amending it to make sure it's working for more people. Macron's challenge now is to do exactly that. If he's yeah. going to succeed, that's what he has to do. Yeah, and he has to do it under difficult circumstances, yeah. not having a, a, a political base among the established parties, got parliamentary elections coming up. Yeah. Uh, he's, got his work, he's got his work cut out for him, though he seems like a pretty deft politician. Let me, I want to follow up on this discussion of your, uh, your stepfather's childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of discussions did you have with him about... Uh, his experiences in Auschwitz. And, and I mean, it's unthinkable, though many people experienced mm. it, to be a child and mm. lose your family in that way. You know, for a while, it's not something he talked about. And yeah. then I think he came to the conclusion that he needed to talk about it, that he needed to bear witness, that he owed that uh, both to uh, the generation that was lost, but he also owed it to the future. And so he started to talk about it at home, and then ultimately he started to write about it. And he finally wrote uh, an autobiography called A Blood and Hope that relayed his experiences uh, during the war and everything that came after and tried to tie together 
um, what he had seen in a world falling apart in the 1930s and some of the things that he was seeing uh, then in the, uh, in, in, in the present. And it's a very powerful, uh, powerful book, but the stories are beyond anything uh, one can even imagine. It's the stuff of, uh, uh, of the movies. Uh, but uh, he, he did talk about it, but <laughs> he, um, he had something that he called uh, concentration camp humor. So he would, tell, he would tell jokes as a way of illuminating some of these things. Uh-huh. And that was a way to make it more digestible to a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me of, I, I had the privilege of traveling to, to Buchenwald with Elie Wiesel. Mm, a great friend. And, uh, and President Obama. And we were in a helicopter approaching Buchenwald. And I said to uh, Elie, uh, I said, you know, you, you came here, think about how you arrived here as a mm-hmm. child. And now you're coming back. Mm-hmm. on a helicopter with the President of the United States, who happens to be an African-American, I said, maybe history has a sense of justice. Mm-hmm. And Ellie said, well, I don't know if it has a sense of justice, but it certainly has a sense of humor. <laughs> so, uh, But um, when you were making uh, decisions as a policymaker uh, relative to Syria, mm-hmm. and I know you, you, you had a dissenting point of view. Uh, I mean, we both have deep respect mm-hmm. for... President Obama, and we don't need to certify that. But you, you, uh, you were for a more aggressive stance uh, earlier. Um, I ask you this uh, in the context of your uh, stepfather, and uh, did it create an even deeper sense of identification with those people who were being murdered, displaced, tortured? Uh, by the Assad regime, uh, David, it did. And look, we're, we're we're all the product of our of our own stories and our own families and our backgrounds, and that influences a lot of what we become and how we think about uh, these problems. And so, when it came to uh, to Syria, or when it came to Libya, before that, yeah, yeah, that certainly influenced me. And and but of course, you you try. You were an advocate for the uh, the uh, the. Uh, I was, and you know, at the in time, Libya. Uh, I was, and I think. My own sense is that President Obama went there against his own better instincts and judgments, and maybe he was right because we've seen, unfortunately, what's uh, resulted in Libya, um, and that is that while we were able to um, prevent uh, a brutal dictator from massacring his own people, we have seen a very chaotic environment emerge afterward, and into that environment uh, we see terrorism. the Islamic State terrorism. Mm-hmm. So, as someone who um, also went through uh, the experience of, uh, of the Iraq War, working in the Senate and seeing how that played out. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to the proposition that uh, the president often brought to this, which is, you know, tell well, me what how this, next question. What next? Yeah. What's the limiting principle? How does this end? Yes. Uh, how does this not draw us deeper in? Or if it doesn't, then uh, what's going to result? Um, but Syria, uh, I think anyone who is involved, no matter what you're advocating, um, it has to live with the fact that um, hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Yeah. Uh, look, there's plenty of blame to go around, starting with the Syrians themselves, going to all of the neighboring countries, whether it's the Arab countries, whether it's the Russians and the Iranians who've kept fueling the fire, um, the Turks and others. But as the one country on earth that more than any other has some capacity to mobilize, to bring people together, to deal with these kinds of atrocities. Um, sure, there are moments that I wish we, we, we could have done more, but I can't sit here today and say, had we done certain things that we didn't do, it's such it would a have turned out question, any different. You mentioned Iraq uh, and the endless quagmire that uh, some, of these, uh, uh, some of these wars created. I mean, we're, we're still there in some form or f- in, in a form, fighting ISIS. We're still in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet... Um, America, since uh, the beginning and certainly in the 20th century, was a beacon of hope for people who were being tortured, who mm. were being killed, mm. who uh, who yearned for freedom and security, and that is part of our value structure. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that concerned people uh, when President Trump basically said, it's America first now. And the implication was we're not going to do those things. But I think there was an audience for that because people are weary of – there are challenges and problems mm-hmm. here. People are weary of uh, 
uh, of America playing the role mm-hmm. of, um, uh, I guess they would say, policemen mm-hmm. uh, around the world. And balancing those things are very tough. This is a constant, um, constant strain in our in our politics and in our foreign policy, and we get pulled between different uh, different poles. Look, during the the refugee crisis that we've been living through as well, you remember there was this image that went around the world of this young Syrian child who had drowned yes. and was being carried yes. onto the beach by a Turkish soldier. And you 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 were left you had left the White House by that by that point, but I remember I was still there, and we were flooded with emails, telephone calls, you name it, saying, "Let them all in, bring every Syrian here." It's outrageous that we've got the ceiling on 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 these Syrian refugees. We should let them all in. Three weeks later, San Bernardino, the terrorist attack, and the emails, the phone calls, everything in exactly the opposite direction. No, no, yeah. <laughs> keep everyone out. These pendulum swings are incredibly intense, and uh, we see that playing out every day. Look, I think uh, one of the um, president's great strengths, President Obama's great strengths, was to not be reactive in the immediate to these huge forces of of, of pressure of public opinion, to try to see uh, a way through to something that made sense and that held up over time. But that pressure every single day was intense. Yeah, you know, um, I've said this many times. Sometimes people say, why do you talk about your own story so much? And the answer is, it's my podcast, guys, so I'm going to talk (laughs) about my own story. But uh, my father was a refugee uh, from Eastern Europe in uh, the early 20th century um, during the pogroms. And I'm forever grateful to America for uh, providing... um, that haven for him and his family, and they became contributors to this the the growth of this country. He served in the military, and um, you know, and 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 became a productive part of our uh, society. And I, I think this is a strength, uh, a great strength of America. If we give that up, not only do we lose our moral position in the world. But this is what keeps our country young and vital and competitive. So I know David, I'm preaching you, to the choir on this one. Not only are you preaching to the choir, I think you've, you've put the finger on, uh, to me, what is one of the uh, biggest challenges we face, which is how do we hold on to these values in this time of profound change where there's such a sense of chaos and confusion and vulnerability. But that one in particular, uh, remaining open, uh, is the one that motivates me more than anything else. And again, we were saying a few moments ago that we're, we're, we're so um, influenced by our own stories, our own family histories. And like you, um, I have parents, grandparents, all of whom were immigrants or even refugees, and very, very similar stories. My father's father uh, fled pogroms in, in Russia, mm-hmm. came to the United States, was welcomed into the United States, built a great life, sent three sons to Ivy League schools. They all contributed. Um, and did good things for this country. My stepmother was a refugee from Hungary, fleeing the communists, literally at the dead of night, getting on a train with her mom. Her mom was in a sham marriage to be able to get out of the country. She too, welcomed into the United States, built a productive life, contributed. And then my stepfather, who we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, as I yeah. said, the only survivor, right, of his, of his, of his town, the 900 kids in his school, the very end of the war, after going through all these concentration camps for four years, he was on a death march out of one of the camps. He made a run for it. He made it into the Bavarian forest. He hid out for a couple of days. And then he heard this rumbling sound. And he looked out from where he was hiding. And instead of seeing the dreaded swastika, he saw a five-pointed yeah. white star in a tank. Yes. He ran to the tank. The hatch opened up. An African-American GI looked down at him. He got down on his knees he said the only three words in English that he knew that his mother had taught him, God bless America. The GI lifted him into the tank, into freedom, into the United States. That's the country I know. That's the country you know. Yes. And if we lose that, we've lost a lot. We've lost everything. I think this is a good spot to take a short break because that, that, that's a message that I hope will sink in. We're back with Tony Blinken. Um, I want to return to your story. 
you went off uh, to uh, Harvard, where guys like you go, <laughs> and um, you uh, you were a writer there, both at the Harvard Crimson. I think you uh, did you help did you form your own publication? I know you you were writing about the arts. No, I just spent all, uh, virtually all of my time in, in college what, what on the school newspaper on the Crimson. Yes, that was a magazine that the Crimson published, a yeah. weekly magazine. Yeah, with uh, Errol Lewis, That's huh? right. who's now a we were co-editors, commentator at the New York Daily News. Yeah, um, wonderful guy, uh, widely widely um, read and 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 respected. Um, but you and you were sort of trying to decide. You had these different strains mm-hmm. of your life between the arts, between. Uh, more public uh, pursuits. So you resolved it by doing what uh, a lot of people do. You went to law school. That's right. And uh, why? You know, I spent time on the school newspaper and loved it and probably learned as much, if not more there from the people I was working with than from uh, anything else I did, uh, did in school. And then I actually went off to, to try to be a journalist briefly. I was in Washington working at the New Republic magazine. Um, and it was actually an extraordinary time to be there. This is 1984, 85. Uh, yes. And of course, um, President Reagan was in office. Yeah. The Democrats were in disarray. And to some extent, the New Republic was the place where a lot of the ideas about the future of the party were mm-hmm. being written about, debated, uh, discussed. So it was a great time to be there. But I kind of felt the need to go back and continue to get uh, a little bit more education. So I thought grad school was a good idea. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to stick with uh, with journalism. Um, and, uh, as you said, as, as so many people do when you're not quite sure what you want to do, but you need another degree, you think you need another degree, law school is what's out there. <laughs> and I did have lawyers in my family, my grandfather, my stepfather. Uh, and I, I thought, well, this is probably the, uh, the way to do it. Uh, and, and so I did. And you practiced law, but not very long. Uh, I practiced law for one year, uh, 10 months, two weeks, three days and five hours. But who's counting? But who's counting? Yeah. yeah. Now I was at a big law firm, a terrific place in New York, but, um, I concluded that this really wasn't for me and uh, went off. There was a brief uh, interregnum in between um, law school and starting at this uh, law firm. I worked on the Dukakis campaign, uh-huh. uh, some, which some of you may remember. Yes. It, it, it's a footnote in history <laughs> now, but good man, good man, Mike Dukakis, but not a great campaign. But, you know, I had a great experience on that campaign because I worked for a guy who was Dukakis's chief fundraiser, a guy named Bob Farmer. Yeah, and sure. Bob was incredibly successful. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the campaign, the one place where that campaign I think that's a, one of the reasons Dukakis got to be the nominee, because yeah. Bob Farmer raised the resources he, during he, a very competitive primary season. I say that as someone who was the media consultant for a less fortunate candidate, Paul Simon. And in indeed, and since I went off to work for, for Joe Biden later on, he reminded me that he was in that race, yes. too. Um, but... You know, Bob Farmer was so successful that um, the campaign, uh, and this tells you a lot about the campaign after the general election, ended up with a surplus. Didn't spend the money that uh, that was raised. That's always painful when you lose. Uh, very painful. Yeah. Uh, but one of the interesting aspects of that, David, was getting a chance to travel around uh, with uh, with Bob basically across the country and meet people now, obviously, uh, relatively affluent people for the yeah. most part, uh, in virtually every part of the country and get, get a real flavor in ways that I hadn't before uh, for uh, for my own country. Uh, mm-hmm. We went to pretty much every uh, every corner. That was a wonderful experience. But then uh, practicing law, decided it wasn't for me, uh, left, went back to Europe, tried to write uh, in, in Paris, got briefly into, um, very unsuccessfully, into the film business, started a production company, been interested in that uh, when I was in New York at, uh, at law school, had great fun for a couple of years, uh, but uh, as I said, very, very unsuccessful. Uh, and then Bill Clinton won, mm-hmm. and I thought this is really what uh, what I want to have a chance to be a part of. So I got in touch with everyone I knew who was uh, involved with uh, with President Clinton, including some folks who had been on the Dukakis campaign, and by a lot of serendipity, wound up um, in the administration at the State Department. And about a year into that, got pulled over to the White House to be one of his speechwriters, and uh, and dealing on national security. That's right national security issues. Uh, and you stayed there throughout the administration. I did. I was there basically until we turned out the lights in January 2001. It seems now Now you had the Balkans and there were some mm. really significant uh, issues during that uh, uh, administration. What lessons did you learn uh, from your experiences during those eight years? 
it first of all being uh, as you know being a um, being a, a speechwriter in this environment is like being in the most extraordinary um, graduate school program yeah. you can possibly be in because you wind up being involved in just about everything we're doing in this case uh, on foreign policy and yeah. security that's what I was writing on so the education there was just unbelievable getting to work with the best people in our government across the government uh, on all of these issues, trying to understand them, trying to figure out ways to communicate them uh, and explain them. And of course, writing for Bill Clinton was an interesting, uh, an interesting challenge. Yeah. He probably added a word or two to your speeches uh, from time to time. Huh? You know, David, the interesting thing about President Clinton was that he was not really interested in sort of high rhetoric. Now, if you're a speechwriter, uh, you know, you want to be Ted Sorensen. You want to right. be, you want to come up with that incredibly memorable phrase. Yeah. And you'd write these things into President Clinton's speeches, and he would cross them out and write words, words, words on the margins. Yeah. Uh, well, his genius was in colloquializing. And he wanted really to make difficult the, ideas. He wanted to make the argument. He wanted to bring you along. His yeah. for him a successful speech was convincing you of something, not of leaving you with some memorable phrase, but of convincing you of something. You know, one of the things that happened during those uh, during that uh, administration was the genocide in Rwanda. Yeah. Uh, so I, I imagine that too was playing on your mind as you looked at Syria. We had every look. We had we had the genocide in Rwanda, and then we we had the Balkans, as you said. And it's a terrible thing to say we got better at it, but 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 we did. Um, and ultimately, uh, after a lot of travail, we got to a much better place in Bosnia. Uh, but it took a long time and a lot of suffering uh, in between. But ultimately, the United States led in bringing that war to conclusion, and Dick Holbrook uh, played a critical role uh, yeah. in, in that. And then Kosovo, which ultimately played out over 78 days. Uh, there, too, uh, a successful resolution because the United States played a leadership role. But look, these things are so hard to compare because at the end of the day, some people made the comparison between Syria and the, and, and the Balkans, between Bosnia and Kosovo. In the case of Bosnia and Kosovo, we were trying to get Slobodan Milosevic to basically give up appendages to his country, not to give up power and possibly give up his life, which is what we would have been trying to do in Syria with Assad. So that's you also one of the issues, isn't it? Because he 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 is has no good options here. He he is uh, he's a war criminal, and people will demand that he be treated as such if he ever were to uh, leave. I suppose that could be negotiated. You'd have to you, you'd have to negotiate that, and I think ultimately you could negotiate that. But unless you can convince him that the alternative uh, is even Isn't worse, that, yeah. he's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, you worked with these two presidents, Obama and hmm. Clinton. Uh, how were they similar and how were they different? Well, one is the high rhetoric thing because uh, Obama was very much an aficionado of words. But uh, what what are the ways in which they were the same and what are the ways in which they were different? Look, it, the great fortune of my life was to get to work for, uh, for both of them because um, both uh, leaders and people for whom I have um, – um, Extraordinary admiration, um, having had the opportunity to see them up up close. But yes, certainly, uh, certainly different. Um, Bill Clinton, one of the most uh, brilliant minds I've ever been uh, uh, been been close to. Someone with uh, this extraordinary curiosity about everything and an amazing ability to pull different threads and strands together and and, and connect them uh, and make sense of them. I always thought, in in, in many ways. Um, the presidency was the greatest job for Bill Clinton, and he was um, perfectly suited to it because of this curiosity. If you had that kind of insatiable thirst, because about the stuff that I don't think people uh, fully process that what happens in the daily day of a president, mm -hmm. and you you're you're bombarded hour mm -hmm. after hour with issues that are really complex on entirely different subjects. Some of which, before you became president, you may not have That's been exactly right. exposed to. Yeah. So, for someone like Clinton, that was like a, uh, a, a, a an intellectual picnic. He uh, he he ate it, and he ate it up uh, every day. And that was uh, that was a wonderful thing. And it and it and it sort of fed your own curiosity about things. Um, I think, at least in my experience, um, President Obama brought to the job um, some truly remarkable qualities that, in my mind at least, growing up, I thought this is what an American president should be. Uh, first of all, his own um, innate uh, decency, uh, dignity, uh, and integrity. 
and that was palpable and, and powerful uh, every day. Um, but second, as you know better than anyone, this extraordinarily ordered, logical mind that was trying uh, in a non-ideological way, at least in my judgment, to solve the country's problems and to do it with um, intellectual honesty and, uh, and rigor and with a, uh, with a real discipline to it. So I think the Clinton White House arguably was not the most disciplined place. I think, uh, from my perspective, the Obama White House was uh, in a very good way. But the, the, the single greatest strength, and I alluded to this earlier, that I th- thought that President Obama brought to the enterprise was, look, the biggest change I experienced in 25 years in government was the flow of information. And the daily assault, the minute-by-minute assault of information that 25 years ago simply was not the case. In the early days of the Clinton White House, everyone did basically two things collectively. 6.30 at night, we stopped what we were doing, and we turned on the national network news, ABC, CBS, NBC. And the other thing we kind of did collectively was we'd get up in the morning, wherever we lived, open the front door of our apartment or house, pick up a hard copy of the New York Times or the Washington Post. Now, of course, we're on this intravenous feed of information. And among other things, as you know from having experienced it, it puts this relentless pressure yeah. on people to just do something, to act, to, do, to, to be responsive to whatever the problem of the moment yeah, is. It's, it's interesting because people, even people who complain about government being too intrusive, too large, as, as when something happens, they say, well, why isn't the president doing, doing something, something about, about it? it? And to me, uh, I think President Obama saw, him, saw himself in part as the circuit breaker. That is, no, we're not going to be just yeah. reactive to the problem. We need, our job is to step back, to think this through, to work this through. And I think nine times out of 10, that's exactly the right thing to do. And it takes tremendous discipline and political courage to do that, because while you're doing that, you're being assaulted every yeah. single second you of know, the day. You know, I was there, obviously, during the first two years when um, the uh, economic crisis was front mm-hmm. and center, and there was a real desperation um, to show uh, progress uh, and progress was going to be slow in coming. It's the nature of those kinds of crises. And uh, but we always felt the need to um, have him out. And uh, in you know, in reflecting on that, and I think he feels this way mm-hmm. tr- too. Probably too much so, you know. And I think over time, his instinct, which mm-hmm. is the one you mm-hmm. uh, talk about, took hold. Uh, which is yes, I know people want the quick uh, answer and uh, the uh, instant remedy, but some things uh, don't yield to that, and we're not mm. going to play that mm. game. But um, uh, it, it takes a lot of discipline uh, to do that. After the Clinton years, uh, you spent time over in Congress. I did. Uh, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I think that's when I first heard a lot about you. Um, and uh, And you... That's where you hooked up with uh, Joe Biden. That's right. I got a call one day. Right after the Clinton administration, I wound up at a a think tank in Washington. And about a year in, I got a call one day from uh, Senator Biden. Uh, He had just taken over the chairmanship of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, and he was looking for um, someone to to run it, a staff director. (laughs) Someone said after I I took the job, hey, you've got two words in your title of staff director. Only one of them counts, and it's not director. (laughs) Uh, But that began um, a truly... Uh, for me at least, wonderful uh, relationship, partnership, friendship with um, uh, with Joe Biden, um, as you know, uh, a truly extraordinary yeah. uh, person. And uh, we uh, worked on the Foreign Relations Committee grappling with, in particular, Iraq, uh, as well as Afghanistan. That that dominated right. the, uh, the time that we were working there. Uh, uh, I want to ask you about Iraq in a second, but you talked about Clinton and Obama. Talk about Biden, and he's a unique personality in American politics. Talk about his qualities. The thing that that really hit me working for him, and I I, I had not known him that well before starting to to work for him. I'd been in a number of meetings. Some of us had gone up to talk to him on a sort of irregular basis, but of course I really got to know him working, working for him. And the thing that struck me most of all is that there was no difference between the public persona and the private person. Uh, he, what you saw was exactly what you'd get, whether it was in public or in private, and, and that was wonderful. Um, 
And there was also, and this is similar to Bill Clinton, I'd say, um, someone who fed off of the energy of other people. Yeah. Just loved to be engaged with people. And also this extraordinary, beyond extraordinary, I can't even think of a word for it, empathy yeah. uh, for other people. Um, and someone motivated, I think, most of all um, in his understanding of, of, of human nature by this one very powerful word that I think remains um, more important than it's ever been, and that is dignity. That ultimately, what so much of what we're trying to do uh, in government uh, is about making sure that we protect and defend, uh, in various ways, people's sense of uh, of dignity. Yeah, and this this extends directly from his own personal that's right uh, personal life and uh, some of the travails that his own family went through. Very much so. And there's something else that was wonderful about that period, and it's it's, it's kind of the end of an era. You know, uh, the year that I started to work for him was 2002, and that was the year that Jesse Helms and Strom Thurmond were retiring from the Senate. And I started working for him in May, and in September, shortly before the midterm elections and their retirement, he had a retirement party for them, which I thought in and of itself was extraordinary, because how could these guys who were so different, um, Biden on the one hand and then Helms and Thurmond on the other, uh, how could they be together in this? And I watched them at this party and I could see the the visible warmth in the relationships and the friendships, again, despite the most profound differences. And then when Senator Thurmond passed away uh, sometime later, he'd asked that Biden deliver the eulogy, yeah. which was extraordinary. It's worth going back and looking at it. Biden, and, who began his career as, uh, as an a, activist as for civil, civil rights, rights. And, and speaking this, at uh, Trump, the, the the segregationist governor, and this eulogy is unvarnished. Uh, yeah. It actually traces the the trajectory of Thurman's life for 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 for, for bad and for good. Uh, and then Jesse Helms, when um, he opened the Jesse Helms Center at the University of North Carolina, he asked that Biden do the inaugural uh, event. Those kinds of relationships uh, across the aisle between people who couldn't be more different in what they they believed. That was something very powerful, and that's something and, that Biden also stood for. And we don't see very much of that anymore. And they got, and they actually got things done. Yeah, yeah. Um, when uh, when you were there, the debate over Iraq took place. Uh, Biden, like many Democrats, voted for to authorize mm. uh, that action. Um, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. Uh, how do you look back on that? Uh, what what are there things that should have been done? And I'm not condemning yeah. him in any way, no, no. you oh, know, because well, I'm a huge admirer yeah. of his, and he played such an important role in the Obama administration in raising important questions about uh, the uh, application of American mm-hmm. force. But um, do you go back from time to time and say there are big things that we should have thought about that we didn't? You can't help but go back and think about it. And what what might we have done differently? Did we make a profound mistake? And of course, we we did uh, on one level. But here was the thinking, and and maybe uh, it was incredibly naive. Maybe it was an incredible misjudgment, uh, or maybe um, uh, we were complicit in in what turned out to be a bad bad mistake. Um, but remember, at the time, the issue that had been uh, surfaced was the concern that Saddam Hussein uh, had stockpiles of of weapons of mass destruction, of chemical weapons, and also might be developing a nuclear weapon. And the Bush administration's opening gambit was to say, we really need to force this issue now, which we agreed with, um, out of the concern that there was something really bad going on. And the way to do that is to get the United Nations inspectors back into Iraq Uh, and to be able to finish the job that they'd started to do and then were stopped from doing. And the argument was, we need to show that the United States is united and that we insist that this has to happen. And to do that, we need a strong vote in Congress, showing that Congress is behind us. The United States is speaking with one voice. And if we get that, we can get the United Nations to insist that the inspectors go back in, uh, and then we can get to the bottom of this problem. Well, we believe that, and Congress ultimately gave the president that support with this authorization to use force, not believing that it would be necessary to use it, but using it as leverage to show the world we were serious, to get the United Nations to take action, 
to get the inspectors back in. And actually, that's exactly what happened. The United Nations voted 15 to nothing that the inspectors had to go back in. And they went back in. And they started to do their jobs. And they were getting the access that they needed. And despite that, the Bush administration decided to proceed with the invasion. So you can say it's, it's a little bit like, to use a really, really bad analogy, it's like the sheriff um, coming to the town elders saying, you know, there's a bad guy in the bar. I got to go get him out. I want your authority, if I have to, to use my gun, but I'm going in there to arrest him. And the town elders say, you know what, you've got it. If you have to do it, uh, do it. But the, the goal here is to arrest him. And instead, the sheriff goes into the bar and just starts shooting. You, uh, you have a unique perspective on this. The big question that uh, arises, obviously, we got, we, we got into a protracted conflict there, um, is uh, were we too ambitious, or uh, was the Bush amb- uh, administration too ambitious, but we as a country, in um, our assumptions about what we could do relative to the promotion of democratic institutions in a place where there are... Uh, huge ethnic divisions um, uh, to this day. And the reason I ask you this is because you ended up as an emissary of the Obama administration Mm -hmm. negotiating with the the various factions in Iraq to try and form a democratic government. Yeah, that's right. On one occasion, I remember President Obama saying, uh, you you know, don't come back till you've gotten this straight. Uh, So... um, I think we learned two profound lessons, uh, well, among others, to me at least, two lessons in, in Iraq. One is that um, uh, our military can do anything that uh, we ask it to do. It will get the job done. Uh, and that's a great source of uh, strength and confidence for us around the world. But um, at the same time, usually uh, what it's able to achieve is not sustainable unless there is some kind of political and economic foundation to support it. And unless there is some basic um, understanding and compact, political understanding and compact among the people in the country in question to sustain it. Uh, and that's what we found out in Iraq. Uh, the military did an extraordinary job, not only in uh, obviously dealing with Saddam Hussein uh, originally, but then over time with great sacrifice and struggle uh, in dealing with the uh, horrific pushback that uh, that followed. But Absent some kind of political accommodation among the different factions in Iraq, um, you couldn't sustain what the military had gained. Uh, And so that's where the emphasis really has to be. That's one big piece of it. The other piece of it is this, David. Most of these conflicts, differences, they're not about us. We need to understand that. We need to understand that as powerful as we are and as essential as we are to trying to mobilize collective action, to dealing with uh, a crisis or to dealing with a, a threat to, uh, to security. Um, at the end of the day, there are also limits to what we can accomplish and what we can achieve precisely because the problem is usually not about us, even though it affects us. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Tony Blinken. You, um, you were the the National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden, and then you moved over to the National uh, Security Council and and then on to become Deputy Secretary of State. Um, during that period um, was also the, the uh, Iran negotiation mm. uh, over the nuclear pact. You, you just and a group just uh, formed a new effort to help sustain mm. support uh, for that agreement. Uh, you've heard all the arguments mm. uh, for and against. Uh, make make the argument uh, for the Iran agreement. Um, and uh, just let me append something to that. Uh, they've got elections coming up uh, this month uh, in, in uh, Iran. And uh, Rouhani, uh, who struck the deal, mm. is being pressed That's right. uh, from the right on it as well. And so talk to me about the implications of that election. I have to say that of all the things I've been involved in uh, in government, one of the things I'm proudest of is working on the uh, uh, agreement that resulted uh, in uh, Iran uh, largely uh, dismantling and mothballing uh, its nuclear program and pushing far into the future uh, the prospect of Iran uh, getting enough material to make, uh, to make a nuclear weapon. Here's what we were confronted with uh, at the time. Um, We had 
an international sanctions regime that uh, had put some put pressure on uh, on Iran, uh, and that sanctions regime is one that we actually built because yeah. when President Obama took office, there were significant domestic sanctions, but they weren't enough right. to really do the deal to yeah, get Iran. I traveled to the with him around the world. I heard and, him make the case to the Chinese and the Russians and others uh, about the need for uh, strong sanctions. But a- absent that. There would never have been sufficient pressure on Iran uh, to actually get it to come back to the uh, table to negotiate uh, because as much pressure as we were putting on them, given the connectivity they had around the world with all of these different economies, unless we right. could get them to crack down, it wasn't going to be enough. And that's exactly what President Obama did. And that was diplomacy, <laughs> diplomacy in action. And it was successful. And it got to the point where Iran was at the table. But here was the bargain. These other countries said the purpose of exerting this pressure on Iran that we'll take part in is not to uh, get them to bring them to their knees to change the regime to deal with all of the other problems, including their sponsorship of sponsorship terrorism. terrorism, destabilizing activities. It's to deal with the nuclear problem, and you'll have our support as long as that's the objective. And we got Iran to the table on that basis, and then through extraordinary effort uh, and negotiations uh, led by John Kerry, um, we were able to get. Uh, an agreement that manifestly has made us more secure and made every country in the region uh, more secure. And while some countries in the region publicly disputed the um, the deal and the benefits that it brought in private, a lot of them, including the Israelis, uh, actually uh, pointed to its uh, its benefits to their their security. But had we not done that, um, a couple of things could have happened because Iran, while we were putting this pressure on was continuing to move uh, forward, getting closer and closer to the day when it could produce enough fissile material for nuclear weapons uh, that it could turn around in a matter of weeks, uh, giving us very little time to uh, to react. Uh, so we needed to deal with this. And the military options were not, uh, were not good, uh, given the likely unintended consequences of using military action uh, against Iran. Um, and the pressure option was only viable if we could keep other countries on board with us. Uh, and it was and clear that they were not going to do that in perpetuity. They, were, they would not do it in perpetuity, and, and it was starting to fray. Mm-hmm. So we needed to try and bring this to a head, um, and we needed to do it in a way that brought these other countries along and kept them with us. And that's exactly uh, what we did. So the bottom line is, look, it's certainly possible that when some of the constraints in this deal – Uh, begin to go away, 10 years out, 15 years out, 20 years out, Iran could decide to turn around and and start to move back to a place where it's developing fissile material for for a weapon. But we will have gained at the least 10, 15, 20 years. We will have gained far greater insight through the most intrusive inspections and monitoring regime ever devised of what they have, where they have it, uh, who's involved in it, and we'll retain every option that we had when we struck the deal uh, to um, do something about it if we have to uh, into the future. So what's at stake in this election? Because the the hardliners in Iran were as unhappy with the agreement as hardliners in the U.S. Yeah, and that's what's one of the most interesting aspects of this. Look, um, we were very clear um, that, as Freud would say, a cigar is just a cigar sometimes. In this case, a nuclear deal is just that, a nuclear deal. Now, some people talked about other impacts that it might have in terms of opening up Iran and the, re- the larger relationship. But what motivated us was dealing with a very specific problem, a very specific threat to our security and to the security of the international community, and that was uh, Iran racing toward uh, the capacity to have uh, material for a nuclear bomb. Um, but interestingly enough, in Iran itself, that's not how the hardliners see the deal. They see it as a Trojan horse designed very much to open Iran up to Western influence, to undermine the very foundations of the revolution. Um, It's pretty interesting that they see it that way. And what's at stake in part in this election is if Rouhani, uh, who, by the way, is uh, is no angel, but he's pragmatic, and he understands that it's in Iran's interest to be more open to the world, to be more connected. Uh, And so he's trying to shape its policies in a more pragmatic way. Um, If he loses and the hardliners come in, um, they may well try to renege on the deal. Now, it's interesting because I think the Trump administration uh, certainly expressed interest in figuring out ways out of the deal. 
Hardliners in Iran also want out, but neither wants to be blamed for it. So each is, in effect, trying to provoke the other into taking a step that will, will crater the deal. Um, it's profoundly in our interest that that not happen. And Diplomacy Works um, was stood up to make sure that um, we're defending what was really one of the signal achievements of the administration for our country's security. But, you know, David, it goes to something larger. Uh, the, 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 uh, the name of this group, Diplomacy Works, it's specific to Iran, but it's also specific to something that I think was a hallmark of um, the Obama administration, which was an emphasis on diplomacy. And when you look at the record, um, it was American diplomacy that got this uh, agreement with Iran. It wouldn't have happened without it. It was American diplomacy that rallied countries around the world to deal with the Ebola outbreak. It was American diplomacy that led to the agreement uh, in Paris on climate. It was American diplomacy that brought 65 countries together to deal with the Islamic State. Um, It was American diplomacy also that changed uh, our relationship, or at least began to change the relationship uh, with Cuba uh, and also with Vietnam, two countries that have been um, thorns in the side of our foreign policy for, for decades. So I think we've demonstrated the power uh, of American diplomacy when uh, it's at the forefront of what you're trying to do. And yeah. I hope we don't and, lose that either. Yeah, well, because there is this proposal, a budget proposal, at least uh, preliminarily, that would see deep cuts in, uh, in, in the State Department and diplomacy. Yeah, that's right. And interestingly, I think the, among the strongest proponents for maintaining the State Department's budget uh, is our military, uh, uniform and, and civilian. And you've heard General Mattis speak very eloquently uh, about the need to sustain uh, support for the State Department. As he put it, if you cut the State Department's budgets, you better give me more money because I'm going to need more bullets because there'll be more conflict. I have to ask you, uh, one c- country with which we don't have better relations today is Russia. <laughs> and... Um, uh, I- I'm interested in your observation. You ran the process at the National Security Council and your role as deputy director there. And process was very important. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction the other day when uh, you uh, read the story? And we still don't know exactly what happened, uh, but the intimation that the president uh, shared uh, intelligence with the foreign minister ambassador uh, from Russia that may have compromised uh, another country's assets uh, in the field uh, in this fight against the Islamic State? Well, two reactions. One reaction was specific to this problem of uh, of having shared this intelligence that was highly sensitive and was provided to us apparently by a, a third country, specifically Israel. with... Uh, so it's been reported specifically with the requirement that it not, not be shared. In fact, not only not shared... Uh, with other countries, but not even shared within our H. own R. government. H.R. McMaster, the, the national security director, said the president wasn't aware of the sources and methods mm-hmm. involved in the, and, and wasn't fully briefed on uh, you know, where, where the information came from. I, I'm perfectly willing to accept that that's, that that's true. But, should he have been? Uh, but he should have been. And it's, uh, it's, it's one thing uh, to say, look, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't know, he couldn't know, this is not his background, this is not where he, he comes from. But unfortunately, it is now his number one responsibility to know better uh, as President of the United States. So uh, I understand it, if that's, if that's what happened, but that's also not acceptable. We can't afford that. And now what happens is this. You know, when we have other countries providing absolutely vital intelligence to us for our own security and for their security, um, but who are very, very concerned uh, about... Uh, these sources and methods getting out, that is how this country got the intelligence uh, and making sure that others don't know that because they could then uh, stop it or interrupt it and put uh, lives in danger. You know, we'll say to that country, look, if you give us this information, we're going to keep it very, very, very tightly compartmentalized. We're only going to share, the only person we're going to share with is the president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> that used to be uh, uh, something Reassuring that would give them confidence. People, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no I heard early in the administration from uh, a former minister in in uh, Europe that their that their intelligence services were nervous because of the perceived relationship with Russia uh, that uh, that they didn't want to necessarily share highly sensitive uh, intelligence. Yeah, but this goes back to to me what the, the larger problem is here, 
and that's this, step back to the election. And what was Russia trying to achieve uh, in interfering on our election? Uh, it was trying to achieve what it's been trying to do throughout the West uh, in recent years, and that is to undermine the legitimacy and credibility of our institutions and leaders, to sow doubt uh, in our system, to create disunity that way, and also at the same time to have Putin be able to demonstrate to his own people, you know, every system is corrupt, right. every system is failing, ours is no worse, stick with me. And he has now succeeded beyond his wildest uh, imagination in doing just that in the United States, <laughs> not just in Western Europe, even more so in the United States. He managed to sow doubt about our electoral system. He managed to help defeat the candidate that he despised, uh, Hillary Clinton. He managed to get uh, the first national security advisor fired. He managed to instigate, instigate multiple counterintelligence investigations. And now he's managed, in effect, to cause the president to fire the FBI director who is investigating him because of concerns about uh, collusion uh, with Russia. And every step along the way, uh, either knowingly or not, wittingly or not, President Trump has aided and abetted this effort at delegitimizing our institutions and our leaders. When he was talking about how the election was going to be rigged before the election in November, those were exactly the talking points of Russia Today and Sputnik, the propaganda arms of the Russian government. When he talked about massive electoral fraud after the election, those were the same talking points the Russians had been putting out. All of that advanced exactly what Putin was trying to achieve, doubt about our system and its legitimacy. Now, by his actions, again, wittingly or not, he's undermined the investigations into what you Russia were, was you doing. You were critical uh, of the firing of Jim Comey. Yeah. Obviously, you worked with the intelligence community when you were at the State Department. Um, what was your uh, thought uh, yesterday or the other day mm. when uh, the story broke about uh, the conversation between Comey and the president <laughs> in which Comey alleges, at, at least to his files apparently, that the president said, you know, why don't we drop this matter with Flynn? Well, my first thought, David, was that um, these are chickens coming home to us because remember just a few days before that, the president had um, unleashed this veiled threat in Comey's direction, saying uh, he better yeah, hope so there, there, there are no tapes, tapes yeah. of our meeting when, Com when Comey uh, said that uh, the president asked for a loyalty oath. Ironically, it turns out the president should have been the one hoping there's no memo uh, of the meeting, because uh, if that memo in fact exists, and I have every reason to believe that it does, and if it accurately reflects what it's reported to, to say, which is that the president tried to get him to lay off the um, uh, investigation and prosecution of, of Mike Flynn, uh, it's obviously a real problem. Look, here too, let's for a second give the president the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that really what was motivating him was, look, he just had to fire this guy, Mike Flynn. Yeah. He suffered enough. Trying to help a friend. Just trying to help a friend, which is a, a human instinct. But totally, totally inappropriate for the president of the United States to be having that conversation with the director well, and he of the dismissed FBI. other people from the room so he could have it alone. Yeah, that certainly obviously adds to the suspicion, as does well, the firing of Mr. Exactly, Comey. Yeah. But even so, this gets back to this point that it's not good enough to say, look, he just didn't know any better. He's the president of the United States. We have to have a president who knows better. What does this do? He's now leaving on a foreign trip as we speak. Uh, what does this do to his ability to do America's business in the world? It puts a dead weight around it. Look, we've all experienced this. When, when, there's, um, when a president goes abroad um, having a problem at home, uh, on the one hand, he hopes this is a great opportunity to change the subject. Um, often, though, that doesn't work because the press corps that comes along with him is usually asking him about the problem back home. This is that on steroids. This is a dead weight uh, around the trip, and it's an incredibly important one to uh, incredibly uh, uh, important partners, allies, or in some cases uh, less than that, but countries that have a real uh, impact on our uh, own security and prosperity going forward. So uh, it's going to be a very big challenge to uh, actually focus on the, the issues at hand. And you're going to have a White House staff with you that is all at once trying to play defense against what's coming from back home while also trying to do what's necessary to have a successful trip. That's an almost impossible hurdle. Just a couple more things before uh, we go. Uh, you know, Dan Shapiro was on here, who you, mm -hmm. you know well, former Good colleague friend, yeah. of yours from the National Security yeah. Council, ambassador to, former ambassador to Israel. He said 
that he was surprised at what the Trump administration is doing in the Middle East and trying to promote the peace process because he said the president's emissary is actually visiting all the right yeah. people, saying all the right things, uh, delivering a message to the Israelis that settlements should uh, not proceed uh, as they have been proceeding. Uh, have you been surprised by that? I've I've heard these same reports, and I think in particular uh, the uh, person that President Trump's designated to be the point person on this, Jeremy Mr. Green, Greenblatt, Greenblatt has, yeah. uh, by all accounts has been doing a terrific job, and is exactly as you say has been talking to everyone, more important, has been listening to everyone, and seems to be bringing a very open mind to this. And that's very encouraging. Um, and kind of the naughtiest problem there is in diplomacy, uh, you see uh, Trump being in a position to actually deliver uh, something that the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration couldn't, in terms of uh, promo- uh, promoting an, a peace process that to its to its uh, successful end. Look, I, honestly, I'd like to. I'd like to think so, simply because it would be so profoundly in the interests of everyone involved, uh, including the United States. But um, look, we, we we can't minimize how extraordinarily difficult this is going to be at this particular mo- moment. The politics in both uh, Israel and the Palestinian Authority don't augur well uh, for moving things forward. There is also this um, outside-in approach of trying to get the Arabs. Uh, to play uh, a mm-hmm. leading role in moving the process forward. Yeah. Not exactly a new idea, something that right. we worked on very hard. The president made the same stop right. in Saudi Arabia exactly. trying to, at the beginning of his administration to try and promote, uh, uh, not Saudi Arabia, well, Saudi Arabia as, as well, but Egypt and trying exactly. to promote uh, consensus in the region but, among Arabs to push for a, That's right. And, 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 and look, there, and there may be a play there, but I think at best— Incremental steps on all sides uh, are probably what's needed to try to get back to some basic modicum of, of trust. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, the status quo isn't static. And Israel is now at the point, or very, very close to the point, where the dream of a Jewish and democratic state uh, is gone. And this generation, because you can't occupy all this you ter- can't territory occupy, with Palestinians, and that's and, right. And and and, 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 and either you, you have a choice, uh, either you're going to be uh, democratic, that is, allow them all of their rights, in which case the state will no longer be Jewish, <laughs> or you're not going to be democratic because you're going to have to deny them their rights in order to retain its its Jewish character. I don't think anyone wants to be, you know, we talk about, oh, are we closing the door on a two state solution? I would put this differently. I would say, are we closing the door? on a Jewish democratic Israel. That's what's at stake. What, what about you? What are you, uh, I know you're working with uh, Vice President Biden on a new institute at right. the University of Pennsylvania. What do you see in your future? Well, we're working uh, very hard with, uh, with Vice President Biden on exactly that, something called the uh, Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Uh, and uh, we brought some very good people uh, together and the University of Pennsylvania uh, is um, very, very focused on this project. But it is, in large part, designed to do what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which was to look at the challenges now to the liberal order that the United States helped to build and shape over the last 70 years, uh, to think about how we do a better job defending it, but also to focus on on how we amend it. So that's something I'm very excited about uh, because it's so necessary. Um, I also have the privilege of being an enemy of the people. Uh, Mm -hmm. I get to work for uh, something you're familiar with, CNN, Mm -hmm. uh, but also for the New York Times, uh, writing for them on a a monthly basis. Um, And I have to say, uh, at this moment in our history, journalism has never been more important than it is. And um, the work that uh, publications like the Times and CNN uh, are doing uh, has never been more vital. Tony Blinken, I could talk to you forever, man. You're uh, you're a... not only a bright, insightful guy, but a committed American and a committed uh, person. And uh, I, I honor your service, and I'm very grateful for the time you've spent at the Institute of Politics. Right back at you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.